Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. This is the fourth podcast of our five-part series on the Showtime original program, The Trade, a docu-series providing a front-row seat to the opioid epidemic through the eyes of those most affected, the growers and cartel bosses, addicts and their families, and law enforcement. In this episode, once again, veteran documentary producer Pagan Harleman, who serves as the executive producer of The Trade, offers her insights and backstories behind episode four. As episode four of The Trade opens, a heroin addict by the name of Andrew from Akron, Ohio, is on the run with a warrant out for his arrest. As things unfold, a dedicated support system that includes family and newfound recovery coaches evolves. We begin with a recovery coach's perspective on this episode. Later, family coach Robin Starr provides insight and analysis of the family dynamics that play out in episode four between Andrew and his Aunt Barb. Before concluding this episode, we'll talk with Judge Tom Teodosio, the presiding judge over Andrew's drug court case. We begin with Pagan Harleman, executive producer of The Trade. Okay, what I'm going to say is I think episode four is my favorite episode. Um, I cried a lot while I watched it. Uh, Every episode is my favorite in some ways because every episode... um, you know, even though it has every episode is sad and challenging parts to me, each of them sort of taught me something about people and humanity. But episode four, um, I just think that uh, the mother, Laura, is one of the most empathetic people. And I really felt for her and her struggles. And I felt like there was sort of um, some real interesting uh, things that were happening between the storylines because you saw Don Miguel and what he was trying to do for his family and his children and you saw Lauren what she was trying to do for her family and her children and with Special Agent James you saw him following up with a target and so the the theme of family is very strong to me in all of our storylines in episode four Um, you know so that's sort of it's it's you're watching Special Agent James continuing on his investigation and you're watching Laura Carter try to save her son um, and you're watching uh, um, Don Miguel in Mexico sort of trying to protect his family and his community, and at the same time there's some federales who are coming in and trying to stop the poppy growing. So each person is, is dealing with sort of a threat to their or obstacles or problems with uh, their day-to-day. I asked Pagan to share the backstory for Andrew and his family. Uh, well, what I can tell you is we, um, you know, the uh, Andrew's parents, um, as you learn in the episode, they had already lost a daughter uh, to an overdose. And the daughter overdosed um, with heroin that had came through Andrew's friend. So Andrew felt enormous guilt. Um, and they were raising uh, their daughter's child. So they, as grandparents, were raising a child. So they had a lot on their plate. 
Um, and they, you know, they wanted to help Andrew. Um, and when we met them, they were trying to find him and get him treatment. Um, but you know, during the course of the episode, we see that Laura, Laura, that the aunt, um, she decides to step up, and Laura wants her step up and become the central person in Andrew's life, you know, and try to help him get treatment, um, you know, and, and she has her reasons for doing it, which I think we learn in the episode, um, and uh, you know, I mean, I. I think I think one another character didn't end up in the show, but another character, a friend of Jen Walton, said mothers are natural born enablers. And as a parent, you know, if your kid shows up and they make promises and they tell you you're going to do this and that, most mothers are going to believe them. They'll believe them the tenth time, the eleventh time, the twelfth time, and it's very hard. And they end up needing support and direction in terms of how to have boundaries when when their child is an addict. And and that's one reason why sometimes at some point they say I. I I have to help myself, you know, and let my child find their own way. We certainly, there's an, like I said, there's so many people we talked to, so many wonderful people who didn't end up in the show, but we learned a lot from. And there's a lot of other mothers we talked to at some point said, I have to put my survival first and I hope my child gets better, but you know, I, I'm not going to contact them for a while. So we saw a whole range of things happen, you know, and, and in this episode, Laura's doing what she thinks is best for her and for her son. Like I said, I, I, as a parent and um, a number of people on our team were parents as well, every day I thought, what would happen if my children, you know, fell into addiction? And I just, I just think it's the hardest thing you could ever deal with as a parent is to, to have somebody you love that you put so much into um, harming themselves in that way, you know, and, and figure out how you, how you show them that you still love them but don't support their behavior and I think it's very hard it's just it's, I just think it's the hardest thing ever in all honesty I mean I think you have to find hope in any way you can you know even when you lose a child you have to find a way to move forward so obviously that's reflected in your commitment to this yeah. podcast and to speaking with other people Next, we talk with John Stuckey, a recovery coach from St. Louis, Missouri, who talks about the vital role recovery coaches can play in recovery. You know, I think they play a vital role in the recovery process. There's a, uh, a lot of miscommunication between, you know, people that are struggling, families, treatment centers, doctors, nurses, case managers. Um, you know, the, the messaging that everyone's portraying is, is, is a good message, uh, but it gets diluted and, uh, you know, the, the person that is supposed to be receiving that message sometimes clearly doesn't understand what they're trying to get across. So recovery coaches really play a part of advocacy for the individual and they kind of help filter through the information that is being portrayed to them and try to put it in terms that they might be a little more understanding or uh, receptive to the information that's being given to them. And I think uh, you saw in the episode, you know, the, the recovery coaches that were out there servicing, you know, they were showing support to the family, kind of, you know, bringing down some of the stress and pressure that the family's under by kind of taking on some of that burden. Um, on top of that, they were showing support for Andrew um, by walking him into the courthouse, walking him into to jail, just showing moral support um, and kind of just bringing a, a sense of reality uh, to the situation to, you know, let him know things are going to be all right. Um, there are resources. You're not alone in this process. And um, really just trying to connect the dots. And like I said earlier, I mean, advocating for them, 
um, which they look and appear like they were doing for them in the court. Next, we learn a little bit more about the family from Barb, who is Andrew's aunt. My sister-in-law had called me and she was very upset and and she was like, I don't, you know, he wants to turn himself in, but he wants to detox first and I don't know what to do. And, um, you know, she's like, I can't bring him here because I have the baby here. I have Madison. And and I said, well, he can come stay with me, um, but I have to have help because I have to work. I can't watch him around the clock. And they actually took shifts while I was at work Wow! and stayed with him. Um, and they, they laugh about it today and say that they, they detoxed him at a country club because it was, the pool was open and it was heated and, and, you know, they were able to like lay around the pool all day. What a rough job, but that's, you know, and he was, he was a mess. Um, we went on a lot of late night walks with the dog, um, taught a lot of, you know, personal and talking, trying to tell him, you know, you really need to turn yourself in. And, um, he was scared and that was talking to Judge Teodosio and trying to get um, trying to get him to not put him in jail. There was never any talk at that time about him coming to my, you know, to stay with me. Mm-hmm. It was that he was going to go to a treatment center. Um, so how did that evolve? Place he detoxed he in my so- at my house, and then he turned himself in. And uh, my brother took him. I didn't have any. I went to work that day, um, nervous as can be. But he turned himself in. And he was in jail through the weekend, and then Monday there was court. And I went to court just thinking that I'm just going to support, you know, to see what's going to happen. And and uh, his attorney came over and said he had gone back and talked to Andrew, and he had asked Andrew what he wanted because Andrew at that point had surrendered and wanted help. And Andrew said he didn't really want to go to treatment, that he wanted to stay with me. And that he knew that he could stay sober if he came to my house. Uh, okay. And he asked me if that was possible. And I said, yes, that he, you know, I, I never dreamt in a million years that it was going to happen. But I, I opened up my home and I said, yes, you know, he could come stay with me. Next, we hear more of the family backstory from Barb. We've had our trials and tribulations. Um, Alicia was always the stellar student, a good kid, um, followed rules. She didn't like smoking, you know, she was anti-drug, and then she uh, moved into an apartment, and individuals moved in next door that were doing a lot of drugs, and um, it was, she was, she decided to try it, and it hit her really hard, and she couldn't stop. She would get to the point where she could not function, and she was nodding out, and it was pretty scary, Um, and then... She moved in with me, moved, you know, like I said, we went through the whole roller coaster ride of she would move in, we'd go to meetings, and and then she would use, I would throw her out, you know, tell her that she's not welcome here if she's using. And I did that quite a few times. She went through, I think it was, I want to say altogether, like five treatment centers. Um, And I'm grateful for every one of them because she found out she was pregnant. She came to my house. Um, we put her, she went into a treatment center and she was able to stay sober through her whole entire pregnancy, um, gave birth to a beautiful baby girl and, and then was off and running again. You know, once she gave birth to, got the life, gave, you know, gave, made life, I guess. And she, she loved, I mean, she really loved her daughter, but she could not, it's a disease and it just overcomes and just kept taking her back. And in July of 
2014, I believe, she Correct. lost her battle. Didn't she, she lost her battle. Um, yeah. She was. She had moved in with my parents. My parents were trying to help her, um, and uh, they, my my father especially, and my my father found her. It was a Sunday morning. We were going to church, and he went in to get her up, and and she was not breathing, and she was gone. Wow. So, and Andrew, I know, blames himself. And uh, it's not his fault. Robin Starr, family coach, joins us now in this next segment for more discussion with Barb. So I had an opportunity to speak with Barb yesterday just to kind of get to know her. And I, of course, saw the segments with Andrew in it and Barb. And I just have to commend her on the way she has held boundaries, which is a very difficult thing. And when we hold our boundaries, a couple things happen. We are choosing to take care of ourselves, which is really important because when we take care of ourselves first, we have the clarity of the consistency and um, I guess the clear mind to be able to help the person we love and not release negative emotions, which only detaches from the person that we love. And the boundaries also allow him to have the natural consequences of his decision. And you know that better than anybody else because you're in recovery, that unless you are taking ownership and responsibility for your actions and decisions and the consequences that come with it or the rewards, you are not going to be able to make any kind of changes. And the science uh, behind motivating people to change, um, there are a lot of very relevant tools, and one of them is boundaries. And when you told me yesterday that Andrew was welcome to live with you, but if he were to use, then he is not welcome in your house. So the decision for him was, if I use, I can't stay with Aunt Barb. If I don't use, I can stay with Aunt Barb. So in teaching him that critical thinking of knowing that his actions and his decisions make, his, um, make the next step in his life happen, you, uh, you, by giving those boundaries, you allowed him to see that. If I do this, this happens. And I know that's happened a number of times. I don't know what he's taken away from that. I don't know if you can give me any feedback on that. Well, he knows. I mean, usually when he's not doing the right thing, he stays, he kind of avoids me because he knows that, uh, you know, uh, in his heart that he's doing the wrong thing, you know. If he does the right thing, then he'll call me. Um, we can go to meetings together. Uh, not, you know, not necessarily will he even come back and, and live with me, but I will support, you know, I, I try to help him any way I can. I try to be an example. Even when he's doing the wrong thing, he can call me, but he doesn't because he knows that I'm going to be, I'm not going to help him. I'm not, if he calls me and he wants money, what I, I'm not going to give it, you know, and he knows that. Mm -hmm. So, um he in turn calls his mother or calls somebody else that he's going to be able to try to beg and, and plead, which he doesn't even try with me anymore because he knows that he's not gonna, it's not gonna get him anywhere. Mm -hmm. So you're still remaining attached, which Correct. is important because you can't influence anybody to change. Not that you're going to make him um, decide whether or not he wants to be sober, but you can influence the progression, the, the ability for him to be motivated to change. So by staying attached and not having a hostile environment and not um, belittling or lecturing or calling names and having any sort of confrontation, that in itself is um, keeps you connected, 
and increases his motivation to change. But I really commend you on being able to keep that open line of communication because when we detach, we have no more ability to influence. So you have a really positive influence on him. Um, but looking back at it, I would have probably opened up communication. I would have talked to him a little more, um, find out how he was feeling because he was getting ready to be released. Um, because now, I mean, looking back at it, I know that he was scared to death because he didn't have to be accountable anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a big thing for him. I, and I didn't realize it, but he was accountable to the courts. He was being drug tested. He was had to go to court and face Judge Diodosio, you know, and, and his caseworker. And um, he had to, he had boundaries that he had to meet. Yes. Was certain limits that right. he, and he obviously thrived in that environment. He did right, and so then all of a sudden it was not there anymore. That community of boundaries and limits. Right, and and everybody says to me, you know there's like three strikes you're out and I was like no it's not three strikes you're out you know I don't know if it's going to be the 28th time that he might get it or the 58th time or whatever time it is you know I'm never going to give up that hope because you never know when it, when the message is he's going to hear the message that he needs to hear in this next segment we'll be talking about drug court with Judge Tom Teodosio Summit County Common Pleas Court uh, has 10 judges. I was one of 10 judges, and each of us had the opportunity to refer people to my drug court for treatment. Um, and Andrew came to my court through that process. Unfortunately, uh, shortly after entering the program, he absconded, and we had to put a warrant out for his arrest. And his family, he was unique in, in the sense that he had a, a Pretty good support group with his family, especially Barbie, his aunt. His aunt, uh, right. Correct. Um, they had convinced him to turn himself in. He was trying to convince the court that uh, he wanted to seek treatment and, and negotiate with the court. I'll turn myself in, but I want to go right into treatment. And, of course, as a judge, uh, I was not going to permit that, and I didn't permit that. He's to be treated like any other individual. There's a warrant out for his arrest. He's brought before the court. Prosecutor can uh, have input with the court as well as the defense counsel, and then I make an informed decision. Judge Teodosio opted to keep Andrew local, where he could be more closely supervised by the court, and in the process denied his request to allow him to go for treatment at Coconut Grove Recovery in Florida. More on that at the end of this episode. In this particular case, he appeared in court uh, with his mother, his father, and Barbie. And Barbie was a wonderful person to supervise him. So I had a choice, either put him in jail, keep him in jail, or let him um, have a consequence, because that's a key to drug court. There has to be consequences for bad decisions, and let him remain out in the community. So after hearing from everybody, I made the decision that the consequence would be house arrest with Barbie, who I felt very comfortable with. She's solid in her recovery. She had uh, the love for her nephew was apparent, and I was convinced that he was going to be under close supervision with him. This way he would be supervised, 
have a consequence, but can get back into treatment, which was our, our main goal. I asked Judge Teodosio to talk about the consequences hanging in the balance in Andrew's case. Sure. And let me start by saying it's important in drug court not only that there be immediate consequences for not following the program rules and not following through with treatment, and, and uh, it's also very important that there be a reward aspect to it. Okay, we want to reward good behavior. So when I think back of our discussion earlier about Andrew's case, while there was a consequence of home incarceration, there was also a reward saying you turned yourself in, you're indicating that you still want this program, and you're convincing me that you're serious about treatment now. I'm going to reward you in the sense that you're not going to jail today. Yeah. So I sort of uh, exercised both uh, discretions that I had in that case. There was a consequence, but there was a reward. In Andrew's case, if he tested dirty or if he uh, absconded again, if he tested dirty or didn't follow through with the treatment, back to jail. If he absconded again, then I would seriously have to consider terminating him from the program and imposing the sentence for his felony. So for those that are listening out there, Judge, what would you say would be the takeaways? The takeaways uh, from drug court is, I always said, number one, you have to be honest. Uh, it's difficult for a lot of people appearing before a drug court judge for the first time because think about their situation. They've been in front of a court many times, and those judges uh, were imposing penalties. Pun they were punitive in nature. Well, drug court judges is totally different. You know, we are going to impose a consequence not as a punishment. It's, it's the court's way to say, you need help. We're going to put you in a safe place and provide you that help. It's because we want them to get better. Well, it takes a while to develop that, that trust. So honesty is imperative. We need to know what's going on in their life, if they're using, how often they're using. And oftentimes I would have somebody who tested dirty, but because they were honest about it, went into their caseworker and said, I slipped up. I used over the weekend. You know, to me, that honesty saved them a jail sentence. I would say, thank you for being honest with us. Now let's uh, develop a plan so that we can make sure this doesn't happen again. You know, throwing that person in jail is probably going to be more harmful to them than rewarding their honesty. So uh, because I witnessed this firsthand, I can, I can say – you know, over time, when I saw those graduates, over time I could tell you had become their biggest coach and biggest cheerleader mm -hmm. in life. Well, it it definitely was the most rewarding part about my job, you know, over the 10 years that I served as a drug court judge. And uh, it's interesting you say that because just yesterday I attended two graduations. I went back to the current drug courts. Uh, because people reached out to me and said, Judge, I'm graduating. Would you come back and, and be part of that ceremony? And I said, absolutely. I, I uh, always try to go back for those people who I worked with to celebrate their, their graduations. And yesterday was a great day because I had two Tremendous. folks graduate. Now that we've heard from Andrew's recovery coach, his aunt who's providing family support, and his drug court judge, I wanted to go back and get the reaction of John Stuckey, the recovery coach, as a kind of outsider looking in on this and giving analysis. So in a situation like this, can you share with us some do's from a recovery coach perspective and some don'ts? 
I mean, I think guiding them in, um, having them go through the process and, you know, facing up to the charges, getting him to turn himself in, I think was a, a, a big step on a willingness part on, on Andrew's side, um, that he was ready to take some necessary steps and, and, you know, it, it's a lot easier. It's one thing to take a step off that cliff by yourself. It's another thing when, you know, not only your family, but you also had outside support kind of carrying him uh, over that ledge. Uh, so it doesn't feel such like a, a leap of faith. It's kind of, you know, you, you, you have that stronghold around you and uh, people kind of helping you out because it's a, it's a scary place to be. In that scenario, how do you advise people? It, it's really scary, Greg, when you talk about it, um, just from a standpoint of how many different scams there are out there, um, specifically in Florida. Florida has been uh, one of the, the the breeding grounds for scam artists and, and treatment. And not saying that there's not good treatment centers in Florida. We work with a couple of agencies down there that uh, we feel are reputable. But, you know, when when you talk about these out-of-state treatments, it's it's a flip of the coin whether you're going to a reputable source or not. <clears throat> and the thing of it is, is you know, you, you watch in that film and you see those family members and they're just in distress and, you know, what do I do? And, and I'll do anything. I'll do anything. And... And so the first person that calls or shows up or the first place that you find to send them, you know, you're, you're going to, you're going to take it. And, you know, that's, it's, uh, it's scary considering that people spend a lot of money to attract people to these out of state services. And, and sometimes it is good for somebody to get out of their environment uh, for stabilization reasons. Um, but you know, wherever you go, there you are. And and I felt like when the judge was referring to that, I think they <clears throat> I think he he felt like he, he didn't know who to trust and that he knew the services that were provided in that area. He knew the accountability that they could hold over Andrew throughout this process and felt confident in that. Florida is the recovery capital of our country. It's also where more families get exploited when seeking treatment than anywhere else in the country. Patient brokering is a practice of offering free flights, free food, clothing, and often treatment for attending a treatment program. In exchange, treatment providers bill insurance companies thousands of dollars for drug testing and treatment. When the benefits run out, the patient is typically kicked out of the program. Even though patient brokering is a felony in Florida, it's still commonplace. Local 10 News, a South Florida television station, did a piece on patient brokering last February. Coconut Grove Recovery was included in their report. And, and that, that is the, the tough part. And, you know, the other part about it, Greg, is there is there's no standard in treatment. Um, if you go to 20 different rehabs, um, and no matter what state you go to, there, there's no clear defined uh, definition of what rehab is. So what are the red flags that you would caution people to watch for when considering sending a loved one or a friend out of state or out of the well, area? I think, you have to take, I think you have to take a couple things into consideration uh, with mental health issues, the severity of the uh, detox, 
um, the really identifying, you know, through like an, uh, an assessment of some sort, you know, you can kind of identify, you know, where some of the struggles are coming from. There's, you know, a lot of different reasons why people will uh, use substances to self-medicate and, you know, really identifying what some of those core issues are and then identifying treatment centers that map out, you know, that form of treatment that are more focused in on grief or trauma or mental health issues or detox stabilization. So, you know, once you kind of identify and, and assess the individual trying to find out what path is going to be most conducive to their recovery. Next, we talk about finding the right treatment facility. Truly identifying the, the right agency. That's why when you talk to a lot of families, a lot of their frustration and they're at their wit's end and, and you hear this time and time and time again, <clears throat> and Johnny's been to 20 rehabs already and none of them have worked. Um, it's, it's like I said, there's no standard in treatment and you know, that treatment centers tend to have their cookie cutter and you either fit the mold or you're not. And then, and then there's a lot of blaming the patient for not being willing or ready and instead of <clears throat> trying to identify the best form of treatment for this individual. Absolutely. So back to Andrew's situation there. Um, so the judge agrees to allow him to detox in the home of his aunt he goes there, and with the help of some recovery coaches, uh, he is uh, under their care as well as uh, over the course of the next year, he's in drug court. He graduates and does very well for that year, and he's on Suboxone. After he's no longer under the supervision of the court, he quits using the Suboxone and goes out and uses again. This is probably a scenario that you've witnessed over and over again. How can they avoid that pitfall? Well, I, I think I think there's a couple of things to point out here. Um, one, uh, accountability is probably one of the toughest things to incorporate into somebody's program. Um, and, you know, without going into too much detail about that, you know, the court system does do a good job of holding people accountable. Uh, you know, they have interventions. And, you know, what I've experienced is that people, there's three ways people really find treatment, and that is, they either hit a rock bottom, uh, they see the light at the end of the tunnel, or they get intervened on. And those interventions are really what you're looking for. Uh, and so when, um, you know, someone says, hi, I'm John, and I'm an addict, by definition, I'm saying I suffer from the Crohn's disease of relapses. I also say that I'm powerless over drugs and alcohol. So once the drugs and alcohol are introduced, I'm, I don't have the ability to make good decisions. And so you're really looking for that intervention and you're looking for that accountability and those people to be able to step in because by definition, the relapses occur. Um, and, and when they do, you need people to come in and help get you back on that horse uh, that can step in before it spirals way out of control. And, uh, you know, the old school model of, you know, let them, let them feel more pain and let them go further down you know, in my experience, by the time they come back, they're in so much of a worse situation with more legal charges, you know, diseases, uh, all types of issues coming back. It's like, you know, if we would have just intervened and stopped it before it got to this point, you know, you'd be, you'd be in a much different situation. So 
you're really looking for the interventions because if if we were talking about any other illness, say Andrew had cancer and say Andrew goes to treatment, he goes to chemo and does all these things, he changes a lot of stuff and then he stops the treatment and he's prolonged and his cancer comes out of remission, you know, in typical situations there, everybody would swarm around him. They would get him back in, see the doctor, go back through treatment and get him back on the path. And that is how typical illnesses and diseases are treated. In this one, we say, Andrew wasn't ready. Everybody failed. Let him go out and feel more pain and let's hope he gets better. And that's, and that's just the logic of what we're dealing with. And that's the stigma that's around addiction. And so I encourage you to look at this as a disease and treat it like one and uh, things will become much clearer for you. But, you know, there, there is hope out there. Once again, we conclude this episode with Pagan Harleman. So final thoughts? Final thoughts on episode four. As I sort of said at the beginning, to me, this episode really brings together the idea that whether you're living in Ohio and you, uh, you have a family member struggling with addiction or you're uh, you know, part of a federal law enforcement team that's trying to cut the supply of heroin and opiates into America or you're a community leaner um, in Mexico, all of our characters are struggling with sort of how to make choices to help their families. And, um, you know, in different ways we see, you know, the consequences of those choices, you know, and, and, and I'm hoping that this this episode will help people understand better sort of you know, that we're all human and we all struggle, you know, we all make mistakes. That's, that's kind of the key. The key here is that we are all human and we do all make mistakes, you know, and we all try to find our way and, and sometimes we lose it and sometimes we find it again. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.